0: Hello again and welcome back to the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan and today I'm speaking with architect Dr. Michael Hurdzen. There aren't many people working in golf design who are more educated than Dr. Michael Hurdzen. His first exposure to golf construction came as a teenager in the 1950s and he later worked as a superintendent in the 1960s while he began amassing degrees in various aspects of agronomy and design. He continued working regionally in Ohio in the Midwest during the 1970s and through most of the 80s, but it wasn't until the early 1990s that his courses really began to break through into the wider golf consciousness, with the development in particular of two marquee projects in Ontario, Devil's Pulpit and Devil's Paintbrush, built for the creators of the board game Trivial Pursuit. Do you remember that game? You know what? I still play it. When it comes to aesthetics, the golf courses he built with former design partner Dana Fry are second to none. Their composed landscapes are striking, evocative seductive, and most importantly, eclectic. Whomever he's worked with, Herdzen is masterful not just at the nuts and bolts of construction, but also at designing in various formats, from organic minimalist presentations to, on the other end of the spectrum, complicated maximalist engineering projects. More crucially, his designs bridge a gap between being visually explosive and strategically captivating. He's not afraid to be bold, to present choices, or put big ominous hazards right in your face. Of course, you know him from Aaron Hills, the course he designed in Wisconsin with Fry and Golf Digest editor Ron Witten that hosted the 2017 U.S. Open. We talk about that, get some scoop on historical golf construction methods, and also hear some fascinating things about his personal background. So settle in or get started on that drive or that workout and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Michael Herdson. So uh, you mentioned in our emails when we were going back and forth uh, that you'd been traveling and teaching. What do you teach and where do you teach it?
1: Well, for um, I'm actually uh, an adjunct professor at a um, university in Shanghai, uh, Jiao Tong uh, Shanghai University. So for a while I was going over to China and I would spend uh, a week and I would teach uh, at a master's level, it's sort of an MBA for golf uh, over there. So I would teach golf architecture for two and a half, three days um, and then now that with President Chi coming in and golf being um, had the, the, you know, the damper put on it, um, I haven't been over there for a couple of years. But, uh, for instance, this year, uh, just what I just got back from was the Golf Course Superintendents Association meeting in San Antonio, where I taught an eight hour class on uh, common sense improvements and uh... to uh... golf course design and uh... where people have an existing golf course and how to make some easy changes to make the golf experience better and to reduce
0: cost was that was that, that golf was course the, owners or superintendents or who attended that?
1: well it's interesting i had uh... two general managers um, i had a university professor um, i had um, and then all the rest were superintendents two golf course builders so two golf course builders Uh, two GMs, a university professor who was just kind of like that topic, and then the rest were superintendents. We're like 63 or 65 in the class. Mm -hmm. And then I'll do, that was the U.S., and then I'll go to Quebec City um, in about two weeks or so, and I'll give a couple talks there on golf course remodeling and, and then how the changes or what changes are taking place or trends golf architecture, and then shortly thereafter I'll speak to the Club Managers Association in San Francisco
0: um, about very similar things, how they can do more with less. Are your teachings primarily on the agronomic and infrastructural side, or are you teaching them like golf concepts and strategy?
1: It's concepts, and what I try to teach uh, Derek, is the fact that the relationship between design and maintenance is, can't ever be broken or uh, always has to stay linked, and that uh, you, you need to understand how things are going to be maintained. Uh, and uh, what equipment's going to be used and what grasses and what the problems are before you can, in fact, design anything, in my opinion. So that's what I'm talking about. If they're getting into a redesign, these are the sorts of things that you should be asking of your designer or your builder or whatever is to try to build them so they're easier to maintain.
0: Mm -hmm. Over in China, you're teaching there. Who are your students in China and what was that experience like for you? Oh, that was pretty interesting. Um, that was um,
1: most of the power structure in China in golf is the general manager is the is the all powerful, uh, not the golf pro and certainly not the golf course superintendent who they think of is really not much higher than the greenkeeper. But the general manager talks directly to the boss. And of course, they're all private clubs over there. There's no public golf course at all. So they're generally a rich guy or a company. Uh, and so the general manager interfaces with the owner. And so he's the man with the power. And um, so in that class, we're generally general managers and um, or owners' representatives. And I did have maybe Oh, Over the years, you know, one or two owners, uh, guys that own golf courses or were getting ready to build golf courses would be in that class. But for the most part, they were general
0: managers. If the the dynamics, the political dynamics in China change, will American architects and European architects continue to build courses over there like they did a while ago? Or will it be the Chinese architects themselves who learn from American architects?
1: Um, I, there's no question that the shift is going towards um, Chinese taught design honed uh, architects. And that's a, the cultural differences are such, so first of all, um, I think that there will always be name celebrity designers that will that rich guys will want a Jack Nicholas or a, or a Greg Norman or a Roy McIlroy or a Tiger Woods they want some designer label on it and then those companies typically have american designers american designers like me cuz we had 11 projects in china before the the bubble bur- burst and um Guys like me will have a lot tougher time competing against the Chinese guys. Number one is that it's the the Chinese culture is is to expect a lot um, and expect a lot of service and time and typically they think that the time on the job is can't be replaced by drawings or um, by the contractor's knowledge and so I think that there's no question that the guy, the Chinese architects are going to have an edge, but there'll always be room for the celebrity designers, and there'll always be room for people like me who partner with Chinese guys to bring a little bit of celebrity and, and lots of know-how, uh, but in time, it'll be Chinese.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you think they'll Will there be a range of different architectural styles that we'll see if that day comes or will everything kind of be this, you know, thinking in Chinese Chinese right now, when you look at the golf courses that are being developed around that area, they're pretty big productions. You don't see a whole lot of, you know, read and react off the land type of architecture. Will we see some of that or will it be kind of vanity projects for the wealthy Chinese investors?
1: Um, I think that you'll start to see more of the naturalized approach to it. Um, a very good friend of mine, uh, Mr. Liu, uh, Mr. Jun Liu, who is a sort of the Robert Trent Jones of China right now. The man was trained as a building architect, structural architect, uh, learned to play golf at a young age, uh, and is um, speaks pretty good English, and, and actually is a very good Chinese golfer. I mean, in general, there aren't a lot of those. Uh, so, Mr. Liu separates himself in that way. Well, Mr. Lou and I've tried to partner on several projects. And the reason for that is, is that he ap- appreciates our environmental approach to things. I say our, you know, our firm Herds and Golf Design, we've always stressed the environmental approach to things. And so Mr. Lou is trying to understand our concepts and, and his, he has a son Um, Kelvin, who is a Ph.D. student at um, Penn State University. So when Mr. Liu comes to visit his son at Penn State, then I usually will go and spend a day or two with Mr. Liu and we'll play golf and we'll talk about golf architecture. And uh, so I think that we will see this revision back to a less artificial Looking golf right. course yeah. that we see in China, as opposed to one that's more fitting of what we think of as the as the right style. But again, it's all culturally driven.
0: Okay, so you're the right guy to ask this question given all of your your education and background. By the way, what did you What is your doctorate in?
1: Uh, plant physiology. I was um, originally uh, my bachelor's degree was in turfgrass management uh-huh. because. I was a golf course superintendent for a short period of time, and that seemed the only thing that was reasonable. And so then that was my bachelor's, and my master's was plant and soil science, and the PhD was in plant physiology. And then I went back for a landscape architecture degree. Um, in, the, in the mid-70s, after I was already
0: in practice. Yeah, so that's that's pretty substantial. You've got all the bases covered. You're also a, a yeah. published author. You've written several books. One of them is uh, about design, construction, and renovation. It's a book that I used to pick up when I was at like Barnes & Noble and thumb through it and look at it. I never bought it. It, was, it looked pretty technical. Um, I ordered it. Uh, but it hadn't arrived yet. I wanted to t- skim through it before I had a chance to talk to you, but it's, but that's probably okay. I'll just ask you directly. Uh, people like me who write about golf courses and try to contextualize things often talk about how golf courses were built in the 19-teens and 1920s, that era, in the era before machinery. And we say things that we don't really know about, like, you know, the horses would drag Metal things behind them, and that's how they would. You know, guys were out with shovel. Could you, without getting too deep into it, can you kind of explain on that that line how golf courses were built pre-industrial era?
1: Yes. and you know and let me tell you the source of that um of course I didn't live in the 20s uh but um I've spoken to people who did <laughs> and uh and then did build golf courses Right. and it was a uh, much more science to it than you ever thought and uh one of the primary people was a uh, guy named Billy Bell and um mm-hmm. out in California the, uh, Yeah out of California and um uh, Bill Bell was the son of Bill Bell Sr. Bill Belly's Billy Bell Sr. worked with uh George Thomas and Alistair Mackenzie, mm-hmm. but primarily with George Thomas. Right. So Billy Bell Jr. um would hear stories from his dad as well as he would work with his dad and so, so anyway, Billy Bell tells me about that uh, mike he said you know you hear people talk about building golf courses with horses and slipscrapers. he said little do they know how it really went he said actually there would sometimes be as many as uh 40 teams of horses and mules um and ponies and he said that you would have mule skinners or or horse people there and you would have to match the animals because some animals pull better to the right and some animals pull better to the left and he said you might do your heavy earth moving with big draft horses and then you'll do the final grade out with ponies and sometimes mules if you were taking dirt long ways or in certain kinds of soils he said there was so much science to uh, or art Depending on your point of view, uh, between, equine art. <laughs> yes, and uh, and understanding what it took to move Earth with certain pieces of equipment and certain mules, and and he said uh, he said it was a wild time too because typically those guys, the mule skinners, were pretty rough breed, and they said they drank a lot, and he said the fights were horrific, <laughs> and uh, he said. It was uh, it was a total circus to see all of the um, all of the uh, the golf course come together. But there's there's a lot of science to what they use. So they use the slip scrapers and as well as the uh, the drags that you talked about and the plows and mole plows and um, there's lots of different pieces of equipment.
0: How I wonder how accurate they could get if, you know, you, so we see these Donald Ross designs and it says, you know, this is five feet up, this is four feet down, this is plus this, minus that. And if you're working with animals, it doesn't seem like you'd I'd be that accurate with it. But I guess you get in there with shovels later on and kind of smooth it out and it seemed yeah. to work out okay.
1: Yeah, that's what they would typically do is they would hog it in and then they would bring in the laborers. Uh, and depending on where they were, whether they were Chinese laborers or Portuguese or whomever, uh, wherever the project was and labor was cheap, you know, even a lot of Irish guys came over with, uh, to do pick and shovel work. But yeah, there was a lot of, an awful lot of hand labor after they, they got done with the animals.
0: Right, right. So then the... Depression comes, and most golf projects end right there, just like in 2008, it ended here. Most most everything stopped. And then World War II comes, and there's almost nothing going on construction-wise during that period. But we come out of World War II, and it's a completely different environment. We have a very hungry consumer market who's craving golf. We have a little bit more disposable income and leisure time than we ever had before. Mindsets have changed. And also we have access to... More industrialized equipment, it's a new technology. what can absolutely so what were the looking back on this those that period in the late 40s into the 50s and up into the 60s probably you' you're going from horses and mules and, and ponies to giant kind of uh, tractors. what what are we looking at what what kind of machine what does the machinery look like in the late 40s, early 50s? well what
1: 's interesting is is that World War I and World War Two gave us lots of the tools that we used on golf courses the The caterpillar or the uh, bulldozer was a derived from a tank. Uh, so the first tracked vehicles were tank vehicles for trench warfare in World War one and then uh, as world war Two came along. They refined the tank to um, to have better uh, capabilities, and so then, you know, at some point that became a bulldozer. Um, high explosives, you know, previously it was nitroglycerin and all of that, but with the German technology, they were able to make uh, much more high-powered explosives and now we could use those to blast rock that we you know you couldn't dynamite out before but now by using the high explosives that could be your friend um and also chemical warfare of uh, both world war 1 and world war 2 gave us lots of the pesticides and chemicals that we used to maintain our golf courses and even artificial nitrogen when you think that back in world war 1 in the 20s and all that is that Primarily, it was manure uh, to get sources of nitrogen. But again, the German chemists figured out how to make artificial nitrogen. And now that's the basis of how we maintain golf courses. And similarly with plant breeding, we were always looking for better strains of, of plants in order to improve productivity. And along with that came the grasses. So it was actually the war effort spurred a lot of that development. It gave us the tanks, it gave us the high explosives, it gave us the better grasses, it gave us better pesticides. Uh, And in addition to that, it gave us two other things, Derek, that were important. One was President Eisenhower, uh, General Eisenhower, who became President Eisenhower, who loved the game of golf. So now we sort of have a um, a man who's revered around the world, who spends a lot of time on a golf course. Uh, the second thing is there was a plan that not a lot of people know about. That was called the 5220 plan, and what that uh, did is for returning GIs, because our industry had pretty well shut down after the war, uh, while they retooled to start making cars and, instead of airplanes and tanks. And this 5220 plan meant that. Returning GIs got $20 a week for 52 weeks on getting out of the service. Well, back in the 40s, golf, you could play all day for a buck. And here you've got good, able-bodied servicemen returning uh, from the war. They can't find a job because there are no jobs when during that, that post-war depression. Uh, and you've got their leader playing golf, so for a dollar a day, you could go play golf. And so that started this whole new generation of public golf courses and public golfers. Uh, and then ultimately that you know trans, trans, uh, transitioned into what we had in the 60s and the 70s. But that was really the emphasis was not only the technology but the social programs as well.
0: So when, uh, when they begin building golf courses again after the war in this period that you're speaking of, what does the equipment look like, and is it the same equipment that you use today, or have we made another jump in technology, or in the uh, in the bulldozer tractor division?
1: Well, uh, we've made tremendous strides in improving the equipment, uh, but more importantly, was the economy. You know, that post-war generation were uh, survivors of the Great Depression. And those guys didn't spend any money unless you absolutely had to spend money. And so golf courses were built with with very meagerly. We would build tees, we'd build greens, we'd be, build very simple bunkers. But, um, you know, first fully automatic irrigation system didn't come into existence until 1959. So we were still putting in, uh, you know, uh, single row quick coupler irrigation. There was, I mean, fairway irrigation was like, unheard of Um, so the irrigation was only to tees and greens typically and so we were building very low cost affordable profitable golf courses Uh, but then as money came along and people started feeling better about themselves and and um, so we started upping the ante and uh, and now we were irrigating not just tees and greens but now we're starting to do fairways and starting to do roughs and and uh now that we had this technology we could build golf courses in deserts and mountains and places where golf could never be built before because of the new powerful equipment and our ability to Irrigate and pump water and develop new grasses that could grow in
0: those places. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm trying to develop. I've had this theory in my head that I'm I'm pursuing and trying to develop, and and it's about this whole period of, of golf architecture coming out of the war and into the 70s, and and trying to figure out if those golf courses. A lot of them are overlooked now. You know, people use the term the Dark Ages for that kind for that period, and I'm trying to see if that's accurate, and trying to find out reasons why the golf courses from that era look different than they started to look in the 80s and 90s. One of the theories I had, and another person kind of suggested this, was that there's a learning curve when you start using heavy machinery to build golf courses maybe the scale of what you're using is too big. You can't get the detail that you could get when you're doing it by hand and horse. And even the operators of the equipment had never built golf courses before. So there's a learning curve on how to really take this machinery in this industry and make an artistic earth product out of it. Do you have any insight or opinion on that? Sure. And um, that's true about the equipment
1: and the operators, because again, as the designers became more sophisticated, the the golf course builders have become more sophisticated as well. And, uh, and then after you've built, you know, 20, 30, or 40 different golf courses, um, you get much better than the first one that you built. And so I think the fact that all of us improved, not just the equipment and not just the operator. I think the architects got better. Back in those early days, in the 50s and the 60s, and I can remember uh, because the first golf course that um, I visited in construction was 1957. And um, so I know what those periods in the 50s and the 60s were, and it was purely functional. Mm -hmm. You know, we were, what money we had, uh, we spent to build The as as functionally correct golf course as we could. You know, the USGA Green Section recommendation for greens construction didn't come until the '60s, early '60s. And so, back in that period, everybody had their different way of building a root zone, and everybody had a different idea on uh, the principles that would be involved uh, in the golf course construction. So, it's it's just this refinement as generational uh, as it goes to people getting better at what they do.
0: So uh, I guess the exception would be Robert Trent Jones, at least, you know, during the 50s. He had, you know, for that era, the biggest budgets that you could imagine for building golf courses. When you, But still, when you look back on his courses, the course that you've seen from the, let's say the 1950s and early 60s, can you tell, do you see a big difference in, in the style of design and the construction methods than you do uh, looking at modern, more recent golf courses, especially no. not, from, not from the 2000s, but like from the 80s and 90s?
1: Absolutely. Uh, matter of fact, there are two Robert Trent Jones senior golf courses that I play um, here in Columbus. Um, the Raymond Memorial Golf Course being one, and it's called Champions now, it used to be called Winding Hollow, and they were products of the 1950s, mm-hmm. and um, and they they tend to be uh, lots of earth moving. I mean, and, and it's concentrated on the tees and greens, nothing basically in the fairways. The bunkers tend to be just oversized, if you will, a little bit, in the fact that they moved a, a lot more dirt, but they did it by raising it up, which is interesting because I call it the Dick Wilson effect. When you look at the people that Trent Jones was competing against back then, uh, he was competing against Dick Wilson Mm -hmm. um, out of Florida, uh, who basically was dealing with flat ground and sand. So in order to make things drain, he had to build things up in the air. Uh, And so that Dick Wilson sort of design is build the greens high up in the air and put the bunkers into the face. He was competing against Robert Bruce Harris out of Chicago, Uh, who was a very sophisticated guy, a very, some say almost miserly, but he was taking a very functional approach. Um, And then Stanley Thompson was still doing some things that were a little bit over the top. And then, you know, even Ross up until 47, 48 was doing golf courses. So, you know, Jones was looking at all of those and trying to find his own style. But the golf courses that I see of Jones in the 50s and the 60s, Tend to have raised greens, in almost in that Dick Wilson style, big long runway tees. Now he never Jones never lost the runway tee business, and there's two or three stories I heard why. One is that they were easy to build. In other words, you just draw a big long rectangle on a map, and you have Mm -hmm. a contractor build a long, big long rectangle. But also they were easy to maintain because you put a mower on it, you mow a big long rectangle. Uh, and it was only later with the Robert Bruce Harris trying to separate tees and different angles of things that that we really started to see that, that change. But then as time went on, Jones, things tend to become a little more flat, a little more well-managed. And also, you know, you had Bob Cup and Jay Morish working for Old Man Jones back when. And those guys were pretty squared away. And so when you look at a... Well, right now, Spyglass Hill, that was Jay Moorish. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, Robert Trent Jones' name on it, but that was a Jay Moorish design. Uh, so y- you know, it isn't just the name on the on the door, uh, but really who were the people behind it and what were the
0: conditions they were under. Right. So you mentioned that you your first exposure to golf was in the was in the 1950s, and then I think it was 1970 that you began uh, working with Jack Kidwell. What did he and he was a regional guy up in the Ohio Upper Midwest area. What what did you learn from him? You had a long relationship with him.
1: Well, and it was actually that first golf course that I saw built was uh, was Jack Kidwell's golf course. My dad was a teaching pro, and he taught at a golf course that was owned by Jack Kidwell. And so I started out as a shag boy and then a caddy, Uh and then in 57, I became a greenkeeper when Jack needed help uh, on Jack's golf course. When Jack needed help out in the field, he'd take me with him, and things were always close in, so they were always within an hour drive or so. And so that's the first project I saw was 1957, was him working on a project, and and I watched his farm fields and woods became a golf course, and I thought it was the most marvelous thing I've ever seen. And Jack was a very much of a practical guy. Um, he did over 100 golf courses in, in the Ohio area. Uh, and most of it were for farmers uh, that, you know, would say, hey, Jack, I'm losing my butt farming. I might as well lose my butt in the golf business. And he'd help them put together, build a
0: golf course and help them teach them how to operate it and everything else. Right, yeah. What were you doing during the 60s, during that period up till 1970s when you began a quote-unquote career?
1: Well, I uh, through I worked for Jack up until 66, so I got my bachelor's degree in turfgrass management. I was still working as an assistant superintendent and then Jack superintendent um, from about my junior year in college. Jack, I, I mean, I'd been working there for Six years or seven years and golf course maintenance was pretty easy back then so he just said here you you do that and then he got busy doing more golf architecture stuff so he didn't have to worry about the golf course he let me do that and then from there to my phd master's phd and then i was in the military up until um the end of the vietnam war and so in 72 when actually 73, I've got released from active duty. That's when I went back and, um, and got a formal partnership with Jack.
0: What, what were you doing doing, excuse me, what were you doing during the war? Were you, were well, you active I, or what, did you go overseas? Well,
1: yeah, it was kind of interesting. I was commissioned in 1966 and, um, I was, um, through ROTC and, um, you didn't know what branch you got until you were commissioned. And so I was hoping to get like infantry or uh artillery or armor, some combat branch. You wanted you wanted and,
0: combat? <laughs>
1: most, oh god, yeah. I loved it. I, running I
0: just, for the border. <laughs>
1: yeah, you're young and dumb and think you're bulletproof, you know, and and uh, you know, I yeah, I had no problem at all of becoming uh-huh. an infantryman. So which uh, which you, what year was
0: this when you got commissioned? Sixty six. Okay.
1: So the Vietnam War just really starting to heat up then, yeah. And um, so I went to um, uh, and actually when I got commissioned, I got commissioned in the Chemical Corps. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, shit, I don't want to be in a, you know, uh, you know, service support. Um, I want to be what, in a what in is a the Chemical unit. Corps? What is the
0: Chemical Corps? Well,
1: uh, the Chemical Corps was was responsible for um, all nuclear weapons. Um, all biological weapons and all chemical weapons. So agent and my orders, I had two sets of orders to Vietnam, and both of them ended up being canceled. But uh, both sets of orders were to spray jungles uh, with Agent Orange. And so I would be a chemical officer assigned to a unit that would be, um, have responsibility for uh, that particular kind of operation. It's called Operation Ranchan back then. And um, they, um, uh, so in the chemical core, we learned about um, poisonous gases, uh, poisonous liquids, uh, nerve agents, uh, you know, riot control. Uh, Back then, they were messing around with hallucinogens, you know, the LSDs and those sorts of things. To put that in the
0: water supply or something like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of that, uh, developing uh, biological weapons you could spray on another country's crops and destroy them, and, I mean, it's pretty hairy stuff. I have to, and,
0: I have to ask, when you're a young, young person at that age, and you're being exposed to this kind of intelligence, do you have, a, do you have any feelings about this? Is, is it an anything-goes mentality because you're at war, or do you have reservations about the implications of these products?
1: Well, that's that's a pretty interesting question. First of all, um, I have to tell you what my basic officer class was. Is that once we were in my basic officer class down at Fort Aniston or Fort McClellan in Aniston, Alabama, there were 31 of us in that class. 30, 31 officers. 30 of them had PhDs, and one had a master's degree in chemical engineering. And so you had a bunch of egghead guys in this officer corps in this class and so we were all kind of cavalier about things and then the more we learned about the horrors of chemical biological and radiological warfare it sobered us up very 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 quickly mm-hmm. you weren't very cavalier at all uh, and, and even now um, the the whole chemical aspect you know it's where what the uh, north korean uh, the uh, president killed his brother using VX, uh, the, a nerve agent. Mm-hmm. And um, so, <laughs> I mean, those things, and, and they yeah. have the largest stockpile of both chemical weapons and biological weapons. I mean, we went after Saddam Hussein because we thought he had chemical weapons, and he probably did. Uh, and they were able to dispose of them. But, you know, this chemical, biological, radiological warfare is scary stuff and uh so as a young person until you learn about it
0: you know it's just like you know we're going to spray jungles big that deal it's tough i mean um, you talk about yeah, how but, the moral side of it but you know like about worrying it being in the wrong hands but it sounds like you know we were we were using it america was using it too in developing these things
1: oh absolutely and and it's only because it all started back in world war 1 uh when the germans introduced uh chlorine gas um all of a sudden it was like my god this is a game changer uh and um so you had to uh develop those kinds of weapons and defenses uh so yeah it was it's pretty eye opening and still is mm-hmm. you just don't talk about it well it, i had two, as i say two sets of wars of vietnam and the only reason that that I didn't go was in 1972 as the war was winding down. Nixon got rid of the chemical corps, and he basically said, We were told as officers you could either go into ordnance corps or you could go to any schools in the inventory and you just have to up your reserve commitment to seven years. Well, I'm thinking, This is great, man. I, uh, first of all, I didn't want to be in a chemical corps, secondly, I could. Uh, and I ended up going to Special Forces uh, school and Airborne school and Special Forces, and then took a seven-year reserve commitment. So, so you I were loved in the, every.
0: Did you, was it the Army that you were in? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you were a Green yes. Beret. Yes. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. if you'd have been deployed, you'd have probably saw some real shit over there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was um, either in the Chemical Corps or through uh, the Special Forces, absolutely. Oh, gosh. And it's a pretty interesting thing. And and, uh, I end up staying, I end up retiring as a colonel Mm -hmm. um, after 23 years. So not on active duty, but a combination of active and
0: reserve. Yeah, so at what point did your you know you you said that when you were young and dumb you were you wanted an infantry or you know a combat position at what point did your view start to swing to the point you were happy that you were not being deployed
1: you know that that's a really good question it was years after the war okay um after vietnam war and uh again i had my reserve commitment so i had special forces reserve units and and lots of those guys had two, three, or four tours, um, in Vietnam. And, um, and those guys were my sergeants and, and soldiers. And I started to see the sort of the impact that it had on them. And, uh, and we would start to talk about things and, and stories. And I'm thinking, you know, as much as I hated missing that war, I don't have nightmares. Uh, I don't have, you know, guilt feelings. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that uh and I think that this last series that, that Tom Burns did on Vietnam was just so wonderful because it just detailed out all of those kinds of feelings and and thoughts that people had,
0: and yeah a lot of people' you know, who, what, you know were of your age and generation didn't want to watch that. it was a little too uncomfortable, I think, or you yeah. know they just didn't want to see those that stuff again, yeah, yeah yeah so you're so I you're in that. You're in. Um. You were working at that time in you and uh, Jack Kidwell in Columbus. Is that where your office was?
1: That yeah, still is. So and so when I when after I got out of the army, I came back, and then Jack and I basically worked out of our homes, and then we got an office, and now I'm still in an office that we bought in the early '90s.
0: Yeah, it just it just occurred to me that when you at that time period, and you're you're active in the army, and then the the shooting at kent state happens in 1970 about that same time you're starting to go to work and it's just what an hour away from where you were what would yeah, you right. what were your feelings about that you must have did you have a, some conflicted feelings or were you still uh did it anger you that that there were these war protests happening all over the country
1: well that, uh, you know I uh, I will sheepishly admit that I was angry that all the war protests were were happening all over the country um, I truly believed in the, the theory that if we let the golden triangle fall, uh, then the communists will take over the world. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I was a product of McCarthyism and, and then the, you know, I, only thing I can say is we should have backed Ho Chi Minh, uh, instead of fighting the guy. Um, and that would have been a lot smarter move. Well,
0: let's, let's, uh, shift back into golf a little more, yeah. uh, soft topic. Um, in 1985, I think that was the year you opened up your own firm, uh, Mr. Kidwell retired, and you were uh, on your own, you hung out your own shingle. What did the golf course architecture world look like to you from your vantage point, being kind of a regional practice, and you're trying to break into it?
1: Well, the um, uh, Jack Kidwell, Parkinson's disease slowly eroded his ability. So up until you know, the early 90s, I tried to keep Jack involved. Only I was running the company. He he didn't want that stress and pressure. And so um, he was somewhat involved, but not, and, and his role was diminishing. So in 85, I think, uh, and he didn't like to get on an airplane. Uh, you know, if we had to fly there, he didn't want to go there. So, and Eighty-five. I just it started to expand our horizons when I saw a proposal somewhere, no matter where it was in the U.S. I would try to go after it. And I think our first big breakthrough was a project on Cape Cod, and um, and uh, that was, you know, the furthest away that we had ever done a project. And um,
0: what was that course and called?
1: Then, uh, Dennis Highlands. Okay. And it was in the little town of Dennis. And then from there, we did other projects on the Cape, and then we started doing stuff in New England, and then we got, you know, invitation. We'd had these before, but Jack would always turn them down, Mm -hmm. and um, so now I was starting to to take those, and by the early 90s, by 90, 91, we had 21 people working for us, you know, in our office, and that was designers and draftsmen, and, you know, we had to have a a couple secretaries and... I mean, it was—we did 17 golf courses in one year.
0: That's amazing. It's hard to yeah. hard to imagine these days, right? Oh, it's
1: ter- yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's just impossible, you think, to do that. But you know, every time we got more projects, we would just find new young designers, and a lot of them are still out there, are still practicing. You know, guys that are um, that started with us are still designing.
0: Who are some of those guys from those early '90s years?
1: Well, um certainly um the well most of like Dana Fry and Jason Straka, you sure. know, their their company. Uh, Bill Kerman um and Kerman Design, he's still out there. Uh John Garner uh went to, left us and went to work for Nicholas, Craig Schreiner, mm-hmm. uh there was um um Bill Boswell, Okay. Barry Serafin. Um, a young lady named Jody Moeller, who uh, worked for Art Hills for a while, and then worked for us, and now she has she had her own company for a while. I think she's just mom now. Just, uh, just I don't know. There yeah. was sometime, like 20 people or 25 people that may have worked for us that have gone on uh, on their own.
0: Yeah. So who are the when you was we surveyed the field and thought of you know you we were competing with other firms for jobs, it, who are the big names? Fazio's uh, Fazio was actually huge. Nicholas, the, the player, you know Palmer firm. Yeah,
1: we we didn't people
0: didn't perceive
1: us as being in the same tier with those guys. You know you had Fazio um, and 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 Jones Pete. and Nicholas and Die. Um, you know, and there may have been Palmer, uh, maybe a couple. Uh, we weren't ever considered That's let's call that A-tier. We weren't ever really considered A-tier players. I mean, people would go look at our work. Our work was and oftentimes better than theirs, but we just didn't have that, we weren't embraced by the press uh, to the level, same level that those guys were. Do you, does, and, that, um,
0: does that mystify you at all? Did- why that yeah
1: well what it did is it firmed up it it started to firm up in my mind that that look at this is um, a lot of it smoke and mirrors and um and that you really if you get a good pr guy working for you you know it it goes a long ways i mean old man jones knew that mm-hmm. um you know when i can't remember the guy that worked for him that was his pr guy that forever and ever um but uh, you know, if you if you can sell, if you can get that sort of thing. Now, die, you know, Pete Die earned his because it was so unique. Uh, his work was this wow. Uh, it was just different. And but you know, a lot of the other skies, I look at it and I go, man, that that's not even as good as ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but they're getting all the press, you know. And the fact, that as an example. Uh, one of my friends and one of my competitors back then that was, that, you know, he was able to fly, he had airplanes and able to pick up Raiders and he would fly the Raiders to the job sites. And so, I mean, when you go on, well, the golf course architect sent in his plane here to pick me up and take me to go rate the golf course, you're not going to rate that golf course poorly, you know, and uh, so... You know they changed the rules you, on ratings.
0: Are you going to tell us who that is? <laughs> no, he's still a good friend of mine. But is, is he is he embarrassed about that? He wouldn't admit to it.
1: No, I mean no, he wasn't embarrassed at all. I mean he, they didn't say you couldn't do that. Yeah, you know, and um, and those guys that get the royal treatment, put them up for a day or two. Hey, you want to bring somebody along? You know, it's a you know it's a six passenger plane. You know, so uh, I mean it was. Was there anything wrong with it? No, not really. Uh, it got his work noticed, and they got great reviews. And hey, you know what can I yeah, say? Until
0: they until they change the rules, you got to bend yep. them if you have to. But yeah. so recently, you've been on a pretty good run. Obviously, Aaron Hills was <laughs> a career-defining yeah. uh, project for you. Your uh, redesign of Sciota, yeah, they're in Columbus, which held the yep. uh, the. Senior Men's senior Open, Open in 2016, yep. and uh, last year you also had another major, the Canadian Women's Open at uh, Ottawa Hunt Club. So it, yes. does it feel like you're starting to? You know, you said before you never thought your firm was maybe an, an A-list firm. I I don't know. I might disagree with that, but if it felt like that, sure. But now, do you feel like things have changed for you, or at least you're running on a on a top of a cresting wave right now?
1: Um, I think that our work is. Um, has never changed. I think our work's always been that quality. It just never got the notice of that it did. Um, I I have people come up to me all the time that said, you know, I played Blackthorn and South Bend and God, what a great golf course. Or, you know, uh, Desert Willow and, and uh, Palm Desert, California. Those are great golf courses. Uh, you know, but th- our work has always been really high quality that just people for just didn't notice and I'll be real honest with you there are a couple writers uh, golf writers that don't like me I don't know why uh, but uh, I I know distinctly they don't like me because I hear people tell the stories uh, and um, so that that doesn't help you
0: that's interesting well one, one writer who does like you was Ron Witten he was help was very involved yes. in the Aaron Hills project Yeah we can we can't go any longer without talking just for a second about Aaron Hills at right. what point in that process did you realize that you were building a course that was intended to host a, a US Open and at that point did how did it alter the way you were approaching the design of of Aaron Hills well
1: derek that was uh, we knew that was such a perfect piece of ground that our goal was to build a $50 green fee golf course that would be the poor man's whistling straight. And that design really never wavered very much. Um, uh, I I think that the difference between the golf course we would have produced for 50 bucks uh, as opposed to what held the open last year is the same, relatively the same golf course. I mean, we've made a few little tweaks and changes, but our, our vision was always to try to find the most perfect golf course that would lay the most gently on that land and i think that um, again if it hadn't been for the open no one would have ever heard of aaron hills even though it hosted the the 2000 um, uh, 11 us amateur and the 2008 uh, ladies pub links nobody would have given it a lot of notice and and so to answer your question when did things change well certainly when the usga gave us the ladies' pub links tournament or gave Aaron Hills the pub links tournament before the golf course was even built. At that point you're going, Ooh, we don't dare mess this up because this could be the opening that takes us to the next level. And um and so the golf course didn't change, but Bob Lang continued to buy more land. He continued to improve the other infrastructure. Uh there were other things that he was doing. But the but the golf course is, you know, uh, probably 92 or 95% uh, today the way it was when we
0: first really finished it. I remember when that course was being built, there was, I guess because I'm in the business and I, you know, had my ear to the ground more than the average player, average golfer does, but there was there was some excitement about it the property you know pictures and things got were yep. leaked about the property and the potential and and the movement and the wild grasses and of course this is right happening when this the whole minimalist wave is sweeping architecture so it seemed to fit right in so there was a lot of enthusiasm about it um i wish yeah. we could <laughs> i wish it was still a 50 dollar golf course though yeah so
1: yeah it well it's um Yes, and, you know, it's still, for being able to play a U.S. Open golf course, it's still cheap. Uh, I mean, if you walk and carry your clubs, I don't know, the green fees are 280 or $300 or something. But, I mean, and you can go out there and walk and carry your club. You don't have to take a caddy. You're going to probably enjoy the course more if you take a caddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, and, and you'll probably shoot a better number because a caddy's going to help you. But, overall, um, that golf course is... Um, you know just a it's pretty rare to be able to play a US Open golf course for that little of money.
0: And have you do you think there's another US Open in the future of Aaron Hills?
1: Uh, I would I'm almost positive of it. I have no inside information, no word of that. But when you get people like Jordan Speeth and and Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy and uh, every you know uh, Thomas, every big name you can think of, saying yes, that is a championship golf course. And the USGA was pleased, you know. And the only reason that the number was 16 under was simply because there was it was wet and there was no wind. Right. Uh, you know, the next time they played an open there, that you know maybe plus five would win it. Uh, so, yeah, I think uh, you know. I it, think
0: most people would like to see take another shot just for that reason alone to see what happens, yes. how it plays when it, it intended to play with under the wind.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's why I think it'll go back. And the infrastructure there. I mean, the 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 parking worked well. The hotel things worked well. Um, I think that everybody that was involved was satisfied with their involvement in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the people of Wisconsin are some of the nicest people in the world. And uh, that's the one comment that went you heard over and over and over. God, these people are nice around here.
0: When you were a teenager growing up in Columbus or, or a young man, how big of a shadow did Jack Nicholas cast over that whole golf scene or the whole town?
1: Well, I I was um, Jack is only a few years older than I am, and um, so we knew about him very very well, and we were jealous. I mean, we were public golf course players with old equipment and all that, and here's Mister Mister Nicholas from Sciota Country Club, the best club in Columbus, and um, you know uh, he was a rich kid. I mean, you know, uh, but he worked hard at his game and he earned everything and. Um there were a lot of people that rooted against him because just because of his social status. But uh we admired him for his ability to play. And uh and then as time went on, uh and certainly the contributions that he's made to the city of Columbus with building Muirfield Village and uh and then um and the country club in Muirfield and and now the contribution that he and Barbara are making to the children's hospital is just phenomenal. So you know, you kind of overlook that when we're young, you're jealous, and then as you get older, you get smarter.
0: Yeah, and you collaborated with him, or I guess I should say he, maybe he collaborated with you a little bit on your uh, renovation or restoration, I'm not sure what you want to call it, of, of Scioto in preparations yes. for the 2016 U.S. Senior Men's Open. So I've got to know, what was it like to work with Jack Nicholas? I mean, this is a guy who grew up on that club. He's from Columbus and he himself has built what 400 golf courses around the world right. like what yep. what 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 possible kind of collaboration could have worked out between you two
1: well it's pretty interesting because um his background is as as a player my background is as a golf course um, a superintendent, and so I'm concerned about drainage patterns and traffic patterns, and, and uh, how much sand's gonna get blasted out of the bunkers, and how many hole locations do we have, and what's the slope of the greens. And, uh, and Jack's looking at it, you know, do you bring the second shot in from the right or the left, and uh, all this. So we, we, had, we approached it with sort of two different points for you. He didn't care anything about agronomy, and I certainly can't understand golf at his level of of ball control and um but you know when we we got together there are certain fundamental basics um jack and i are both pretty affable guys i mean we were have been acquaintances through american society of golf course architects for quite a while i mean it was casual hey jack how you doing you know congratulations on whatever it might be and uh but when we worked together, we actually developed a friendship to the point where you know, I could call his office and say, "This is Mike Herdson, and you know I'd get through uh, and um, and he and Barbara visited our office and golf museum and um, so it went from sort of an acquaintance to to a friendship. I still don't move in his social circles and don't really care to, but um, I think that I think it's a mutual respect. I have a lot more respect for him, and I think he has a lot more respect for me.
0: Did it feel to you like being working on that particular club? You were invading his territory? (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, I had been consulting with uh, Sciota since the mid-70s. Uh, matter of fact, I think the first report I wrote for them was like in 1975. So he hadn't been around for most of that time. So there was a 20 or 22 year gap where he never even showed up at that club. And so, you know, I was there doing the consulting kinds of things for the golf course and actually, I'd done all the bunkers, uh, all the fairway bunkers, the greens, bunkers, all of the, the tees, the fairway lines all the tree removal, tree planting all of that was done and then Jack and I worked on the greens together um so you know of the total project he was involved with about that 20% maybe the most important 20 or 25% but you know actually he was coming back to the club uh that I had been spending a fair amount of time at so no I didn't feel like I was invading his territory
0: right right uh, do you get you may not know this so I don't know why you would but did you get the feeling when you're working with him the way he when he ran his own design firm that he had others that uh, who were dealing with the uh, in and out the traffic patterns the irrigation patterns and and he was still even after all these decades really just focused on the strategies of the golf holes, did you get the feeling that was the way he ran his office?
1: Yes, yep, absolutely okay. yeah, i mean he um I mentioned to him about that and something about to that effect and he said, "Mike, that's plumbing. I don't do plumbing. Uh, I have people that do plumbing, and I'm thinking, no, Jack, that's golf architecture. He just called you this a plumber. How we do golf architecture. <laughs> yeah,
0: you and uh, you and uh, Dana Fry when you were together and and before that too. But I always my impression of looking at your golf courses was you were very." Uh, cognizant of the artistry and the composition, and you did it in a wide, wide array of styles. I mean, you you built all kinds of golf courses that looked completely different. I, I used to get those calendars your office used to send out um, oh, every thanks. year. I, I must have got, did you stop doing those, or did I just get kicked yeah. off your mailing list? Yeah,
1: people just didn't, you know, when, when the computer stuff came along, and people didn't use calendars quite so much, and and um yeah it was it was hardly worth it but yeah. anyway yeah those I are beautiful your story.
0: and but they, they what they did was they really showcased how gorgeous your golf courses were and also strategically fascinating too you really have a, a very uh, i don't want to say aggressive but a very you know your bunkering is very pertinent it matters and uh, yeah. i was going to just ask you about a uh, get some comments on a couple golf courses that you designed up in ontario I think I think they were kind of your, some of your breakout courses, uh, Devil's Pulpit and Devil's Paintbrush, completely, completely different looking golf courses that are very close to each other. Those were a big those were a big moment for you, weren't they?
1: Oh, that was huge. That was the breakout job. Everybody has breakout jobs. You know, for Pete Dye it was Harbor Town and for Tom Fazio it was Wild Dunes and for us, it was uh, the devil's pulpit right. um, and um, and then the paintbrush right on top of it. And so we had two entirely different golf experiences for one membership built within a year or so of, of one another. And even yet, a lot of people say it's the best 36-hole membership in golf uh, just because they're just so vastly different and both very, very solid. And because um, they end up playing a skins game up there at the pulpit, not long after it was open, and um, they um, and so those were definitely our breakout jobs. And that was in the early 90s. Uh, like I say, we we've been doing good work for quite a while. No one's yeah. just noticed it.
0: <laughs> well, the, the, those were. I mean, if they're so different, the the paintbrush course looks like. Um, and I haven't been there, but i just looking at pictures and uh, researching it as much as I could. It looks like you know, it looks like a Scottish inspired course with so different, many different lines of play. And there's some double greens and just a, yep. a variety of, of looks on the ground. Another course that's one of, uh, would be sort of in your pantheon of masterpieces is Calusa pines in Naples, which was a, the opposite of a minimalist approach to design out of necessity. If anybody who's been to that part of Florida knows that there's nothing to work with, talk about that project a little bit. That was a, another one that is Continues to be uh, regarded at, uh, higher and higher each each rankings that comes out. It seems.
1: Well, that that project, um, the man who owned that, Gary Chensov, uh, or was developing, it, had bought a large piece of ground and was going to do thirty-six holes there, an eighteen-hole country club, which he did build, which is Calusa, and then they were going to build an eighteen-hole public. But when the when the market went down, he kind of ignored that. But um, when Gary had developed. A couple of golf courses in Florida with a couple of different architects, and so he was somewhat experienced or was very experienced when he came to us. And basically, Gary is kind of a Chicago hard-nosed kind of a guy, and he goes, "Tell me why I should hire you guys. Why shouldn't I hire, you know, a, a B or C?" And um, and I said, Gary, the reason you should hire us is because we're more creative. And he goes, well, can you prove that? And I said, yep. <clears throat> if you'll just give me uh, some time um, and um, to work with things, I said, if you come visit us, I'll show you why we're more creative. And um, so I worked on a plan for uh, a week or two, and um, and then Gary came to Columbus and visited with us, and I had done a 36-hole routing. And basically, it was the idea of the big fills. Everybody's using little humpy, bumpy things, you know and and um and i and I explained to Gary I said, here's the concept is that Gary Chensoff has found the most unusual piece of ground in uh South Florida, and there are three big mounds, very s- slow, rolling big mounds, and um on one of those mounds, the clubhouse for the eighteen hole country club is going to be and on the other mound which is about a mile away or half well probably half mile away is on the other big mound is where the clubhouse for the public golf course is and then the third big mound is out in the middle of the country club and lots of golf holes work to and from that big mound and so you know you have this beautiful soft rolling piece of ground uh, that the golf holes fit into and then I talked him through all of those, and <clears throat> at that time, and Gary was sold. He goes, yep, you are more creative. No one has ever come up with that kind of a concept. So we took it to several people, matter of fact, a Collier family, and, uh, and to see if they would be one of Gary's investors. And I'll never forget Mrs. Call, um, uh, Collier saying, I just don't get it. We got mounds on our golf courses too, uh, and I just don't see how this is going to make any difference at all. And Gary said, well, thank you very much. Nice talking with you. And and so that's the concept that was there was that we call it the big fill. So instead of taking the fill material we would normally use and then sprinkle it around all over the golf course with little humpy bumpy stuff that everybody else was doing was to concentrate it into these big fills and then work off of the fills
0: and it's a spectacular place it's it works it's it's kind of a simple concept but i guess radical in that part of the country yep if there's one golf course that i would of yours that i would like to play i hope to get to play it sometime it it looks like it was built in the 1920s at shelter harbor in rhode island this place i mean it just looks gorgeous what's the story behind that golf course
1: well, that was pretty interesting. Is that there was a um, a very wealthy man named Finn Casperson, and he owned a beneficial finance. I think it was the company. I can't really remember, but anyway, I think Finn was a um, not much of a golfer. played I don't think he played golf at all. But like a lot of wealthy people, he would had a summer place in at end of Rhode Island even though his offices were in um, New York. And um, someone said, Finn, you ought to build a golf course. Uh, you know, And um, he said, we can get a bunch of guys together and let's form a, a committee and let's build a golf course. So somehow they, well, of course, R- Rhode Island has pretty strict environmental rules. And we were and are known as environmental golf course architects. And so when Finn was looking for an architect, there were, a lot of people said, "Man, you got to talk to Mike Hurdson. He is the environmental." And we were pretty active in the environmental uh, movements at that point. So I met Mr. Casperson, and and uh, we got along just fine. And he hired us. And uh, then he showed us the piece of ground in Westerly, Rhode Island, and it was really heavily rolling, huge boulders everywhere. Uh, There were wetland areas. I mean, there were a lot of issues that had to be solved on that. And um, and it required a lot of uh, um, environmental work uh, that we worked in concert with the engineers and the environmentalists from that that local area to put together a golf course that would fit onto that. Uh, And then the theme being that old New England. Um, Esquamacet was right there and Newport uh, you know, a country club. And so we wanted to try to capture that old new England feel. And so that's how it came about.
0: Yeah. Uh, again, it's on my punch list. I've got a, I'm not a, not a list checker offer, but that golf course yeah. has me thinking, um, and one more, and this one I am familiar with, I've been over there a number of times, um, is farm links, which is uh, about an hour mm. south of Birmingham, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, really interesting right. concept. The Purcell family owns a lot of acreage there it's just out in the middle of the country and they do a lot of turf development and they have seminars where they'll bring in superintendents from around the country to stay for a few nights on premise and they'll learn about new uh, turf grasses and fertilizer applications. The Purcell family uh, developed a, a certain type of slow-release fertilizer in the you know 1950s and 60s and 70s I guess and now it's really sort of like a laboratory for agronomy but there's a wonderful beautiful 18 hole golf course there that that you designed uh, tell us a little bit about that
1: well that was polyon was the the uh, fertilizer that the Purcell technologies had developed and um, we um, of course are always interested in new technologies and that one was very environmentally attuned because what it was it was like a you know we have the the 12-hour, 24-hour capsulated uh, medicines, you know, that we can take and they're slow-release. What they had done is develop a very slow-release fertilizer that would last for three months. So basically, as a plant needed or used fertilizer, this fertilizer would be released from that that particle. and, And so there was very little or no nitrogen that would get into the groundwater. And so we embraced it as a one of those environmental advances uh, that, that people should be looking at. And so we became familiar with the Purcell family, and they knew our environmental approach to things. So in discussions with David Purcell, who was running the company, he said, David, you need to make a research golf course. We need to, you need to find some partners and put together a golf course, and we'll try lots of different things. Now, at Widow's Walk, just south of Boston, in the little town of situate we had actually done the first environmental demonstration uh golf course um in in america in the world uh and certainly in north america there was and that golf course in Situate was built to test all different kinds of things and they had like six california greens and six topsoil greens and six usga greens and different grasses and uh, different drainage and uh, different kinds of soil amendments, and we tried to recycle everything. So we'd already had a history of that. So when we approached David, we said, "David, these are some of the things that you ought to consider." And and he liked our ideas. He liked our approach. He he liked us. And um, and the Purcell family are absolutely wonderful people. Matter of fact, I we still consider them some of our best friends. And um, and still visit down there, so that's how that all came about. And that property you had to work with there was
0: very—you
1: had a lot of room to work. with. Yeah, we wanted. That's interesting that you've been there, Derek, because we wanted six holes back by the wetlands. We wanted six holes out in the open. We wanted six holes up into the hills and in, in the woods, mm-hmm. uh, so that you got these different environments. And it was a. I don't know, a 600-acre farm or something that the Purcells had, maybe even more than that. But uh, we had all the land in the world that we needed to work with, and so we were able to choose those different microclimates to put the golf course in to try to get different
0: research experiences. Yeah, and it works well because you do feel like you're going through different these different aspects of the property. You play up on the hill, foothills, down through the valley, up another flank, and around back through this wide-open prairie. And uh, the other interesting thing about the golf course is different tee boxes and greens are planted with different types of grasses. Now, the average person who doesn't really know about turf grasses won't really notice it, but, you know, uh, one tee box might be bent, a certain strain of bent, and uh, one green might be a uh, certain... St- New hybrid of Bermuda. So if you pay attention to that, it, it's you know it's a pretty interesting experience to go play around a round of golf there. Yeah, yeah.
1: That was the idea.
0: Yeah, it was a good job. Probably should uh, think about wrapping this up. You've been great with your time. So I'm just going to ask a few quick questions uh, on the way out. Now you've you I'll do give a lot of quick answers. I'll okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, You've done a lot of uh, renovation restoration work of architecture from the early part of the 19th century. Is there an, a designer? in particular from that era that you have experienced and you just you think they're overrated or you you just can't quite get on board with their design style?
1: Wow, Um, I thought you were gonna go the other way and ask people who uh, I'm enamored with Um, but you you know I try to put I, I can't answer that question for this reason I try to put the golf course when I evaluate it in context of where it is When it was built and what the social situation was, what were the means available to them? We talked about equipment, you know, uh, construction equipment and grasses and irrigation. So I try to put it in context of of social and um, uh, technological context. And so I can't say that there's anything that that really was negative of those old guys because they were all so uh, practically oriented. Now, a lot of the contemporary designers I could be critical of because I think we use way too much sand and we use way too much irrigation and uh, I think that uh, so much of the golf courses, uh, a lot of money has been wasted on waterfalls and fluff that uh, really marginally contribute to the golf experience but the old timers just didn't didn't waste much money and uh, so when i put it in context I'm, i i don't find any negatives on the positive side someone like willie park junior to me is just an absolute total genius uh all of willie Park's stuff was great uh of course you can't you know donald ross is a legend as well as he should be and and old tom morris was a genius uh so uh, you know, what about, know, it's a poor job of answering no, a question. not at
0: all. What What about Willie Park impresses you most?
1: Well, I think his routings were so good, and he used the land so well. And uh, he had um, uh, his bunkering was really built to um, fit the, the, the style of play back then, uh, his greens construction. I mean, the guy was very cerebral in what he did. Uh, without being able to have a golf course to show you I but I've never seen one that wasn't anything but stellar
0: right right Um, I ask this to everybody that I interview now I'm kind of I guess I'm building sort of a a catalog of answers and they're all over the board Uh, other than any golf course that you yourself have been involved in building what modern course built in the last say 25 or 30 years uh, would do you enjoy playing yourself over and over again
1: Um, the, the, um, last 25 or 30 years. Yeah. To keep
0: it contemporary.
1: Yeah. Um, that we didn't design. Correct. Uh, that's a pretty good, pretty good question. I would have to say, wow, I have to think a little bit about that. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Derek, I, I don't know how to answer that because there's, I play a lot of golf courses that. That um, I enjoy certainly the raw stuff uh, down at Pinehurst is enjoyable, but that's not contemporary. Um, so I I just find I find there's a, a thrill or an enjoyment in every golf course, one way or the other. There's no such thing as a bad golf course. It's just some that are better than others or more appealing than others. But I but I would say that that if I had to choose one, I would probably choose the Fazio golf courses down at, um, in uh, Florida at world woods. Um, I think those are really two marvelous golf courses, Mike Strances golf courses. I'd like a lot, uh, tobacco road. Uh, first time I played it, I didn't like it. And then I liked it a lot. Uh, and, um, um, uh, so I think the Mike Strance kinds of things are uh, are very unusual and very much fun to play.
0: Okay, I think you and I could play together. we I think we have similar taste. I can endorse both of those places very highly. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. here's the last one, Mike. You've worked with uh, so many different people designing golf courses over the years. What would your dream collaboration be? Who would it, who would it be with? And I know you'd like to say your son. He's a partner in in your firm now. But keep it yeah. outside the family. And it could be anybody—a golf architect, a, a person from the past. Who who do you think would be the the best person to go into a project with?
1: Um, Pete Dye. Nice. I would love to collaborate with Pete Dye. Uh, Pete just thinks differently than we do about things, and um, and he's just a fun guy to spend time with. And um, so if I had to pick a guy, that's that's the guy I would want to do it with. Had you gotten to know him pretty good over the years? Yeah, matter of fact, him being from Urbana, Ohio, and um, I'd have to say I know Pete and Alice pretty well. I mean, I don't know him as well as our own family, but, you know, we communicate a good bit, and uh, we are good friends, and um, so, yes, I I feel very comfortable. I feel like I know Pete and Alice and, and Perry and PB, you know, and, and all their wives and kids and, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I know the Die family.
0: Yeah, and you could definitely talk plumbing with him. Yeah. You <laughs> could get on board with that. All right, Mike, uh, I appreciate your time. This was a good conversation. Very, very well done. I, I think we covered a lot of ground and you shared some good stories with us. It was really good. Thanks.
1: Thank you very much, Derek. Oh, good luck. And uh, let me know when it comes on and um, I'll take a listen to it.
0: I appreciate that. Thanks again, Mike. Take care. Thank you. Okay. So that was Dr. Michael Herdzen. I wonder if there are any other doctors or people with doctorates that are practicing golf course architecture, or has it just been him and Alistair? I'm sure there are others. I just can't think of them right now. The man is a font of knowledge when it comes to golf. And we didn't really get into this part of it too much. When you talk to somebody for an hour, it goes by fast and you barely scratch the surface of what they know or their experiences. But according to many reports, he has one of the largest private collections of golf. I guess you'd call it memorabilia. He's got a golf museum. He mentioned it briefly uh, in that conversation, but it's, it's just an enormous collection of old equipment, hickory clubs, rare books, art, golf manuscripts, photographs, just different types of memorabilia and, and artifacts. Now, when I was looking to research that a little bit, I found a story from Golfdom from a few years ago, and the writer said that uh, Herdzen had acquired an, an old rare book, maybe through an auction, um, by Alistair McKenzie. And at the back of the book, nobody knew it, but McKinsey's, uh sketches and, and hand drawings of the greens from Augusta National were tucked in there, these sketches that nobody knew existed. Uh, and he's got those now. So uh, if you're ever in Columbus, um, maybe look him up, and he might give you a tour of his uh, amazing golf museum. The other thing I thought was interesting in that conversation was his comments on Jack Nicholas. Speaking of Columbus... Um, it was interesting to get Herdson's view of what it was like growing up in that era of, of Jack Nicholas when they were young guys and kind of being on the outside looking through the proverbial gate of the country club to where Nicholas was and to get that Columbus level view of, of the Nicholas dynamic. He was a rich kid, Herdson said. And I think we can all kind of, many of us can relate to that sentiment of, of being on the outside looking in. It was also pertinent when he mentioned that Nicholas had done so much for the city of Columbus. Nicholas announced this week that he's stepping away from Nicholas' design and that aspect of his business empire to focus more on charity work specifically. So it was very timely that uh, Mike Herdson uh, brought that up and made us aware of that. So I hope you enjoyed that. I think we're all a little bit smarter after listening to him speak for a while. I know that I am. Thanks, Dr. Herdson, for spending some time with me. Please check out FeedTheBall.com for news on upcoming episodes and other golf-related content, including golf course reviews. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram, at FeedTheBall. If you like the show, go on iTunes or Stitcher. Give it a rating. You can leave comments on the FeedTheBall.com website. Be happy to hear uh, your thoughts on the podcast, things you like, things you don't like. You can subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. As always, I want to thank the Sundogs and Will and Lee Haraway for letting me use their music for the bumpers. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Until next time.